From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and acts on them, will be like the wise one who builds their house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish one who builds their house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. I'm very grateful to be here this morning. It's a great honor to be part of the ministry of Montreat. It's a place that is like a kind of gathering point, a pilgrimage site for people all around the country, and I'm sure, in fact, for many around even the whole world. So it's a great honor to be here. So many people's lives that have deeply affected mine have been affected by this place. And on this weekend of celebrating the completion of all the renovations that are underway, it's just been a particularly wonderful joy. So thank you for the privilege and gift that it is to be here. I want us to focus on these two texts that we've heard read, the wonderful reading that we received from the book of Daniel and also the text from Matthew. But first, let me tell you a story. There is a wonderful woman in the church that I served in Berkeley, California, named Doris. At the time of this story, Doris is about 85 years old, and on a Sunday morning, I heard the news that something terrible had happened to Doris. It was very unclear what it was that had occurred, but I thought, at last, this is my opportunity to be Doris's pastor. There had been so many times when she had been my pastor, and now this was finally going to be my chance to show up and try to encourage her in some moment of trauma. It was unclear what it was, and I rushed there immediately after the services, and I came to her door of her apartment. She ushered me in, and she was clearly a little undone, but I couldn't quite figure out what had happened. And we sat down, and I said, Doris, tell me what occurred. She said, well, you know, I was just arriving at church this morning, I was parking in that usual spot that I park in, and I was just reaching back into the car to get those nut muffins, you know those nut muffins that I always make? Well, I was just reaching back in the car to get the nut muffins when suddenly I was struck from behind and pushed across the console of the car into the passenger seat, and someone that had struck me jumped into the driver's seat behind me, and suddenly we took off. So, of course, the first thing I did was to ask him his name. I thought, Right, uh, by all means, this would be the way that a story about Doris would go. When kidnapped, start by asking your kidnapper's name. Note to self, remember to do that. He said, his name was Jesse. I said, Jesse, what are we doing? He said, we're going to your bank. Why are we going to my bank? Because I need some money. Why do you need some money? Because I'm a drug addict. She said, Jesse, do you know that it's a terrible thing to be a drug addict? He said, well, I, I had noticed, but in any case, we're on our way to the bank. He forced her through intimidation and other things to eventually tell him what the code to her bank was. They made the first stop. He got the allotment of money that he could out of the machine, and they went on their way to the next stop. And as they were making their way to the next stop, the conversation continued. Have you been a drug addict for a long time? Doris asked. Well, actually, yes, I have. You know, it's a terrible thing. You need a really good drug rehab program, she said to him. Yes, yes, I know. And they stopped 
at the next bank. They stopped one more time and again continued the conversation. She, need, she said, you know, you need something even more, though, than just a good drug rehab program. You also need Jesus. He said, well, I don't know really anything about Jesus and the drug rehab programs that I've been assigned to before haven't worked, so let's just make another stop. They made another stop and finally, having maxed out her daily limit, they paused and he was about to abandon her by the side of the road. She couldn't get out of the car. She expressed that to Jesse. He came to her side of the car, opened the door, escorted her around to the driver's side and helped her in, lifted her legs into the car, put the seatbelt across her and then gave her a kiss on the cheek. Jesse, have you ever done this before? Doris said. Well, maybe once or twice, he said. This is a terrible thing, she said. I'm going to pray that you get caught because you should really not be a drug addict and you should really not be kidnapping people. He said, well, probably you're right on both counts. She said, but you need help. I want you to be arrested so that you get stopped kidnapping people and so that you can get a good drug rehab program and so that I can tell you more about Jesus Christ. And with that, he was off. Doris, this is just an unbelievable story. She said, well, it is unbelievable. I mean, who would have ever guessed? I just was bringing nut muffins to church. I mean, that was all I was doing. This was not a morning where I had any idea that I would be kidnapped. I said, it's a terrible thing that you were kidnapped. She said, it is a terrible thing. But you know, as I thought about it through the morning, I realized, you know, there's a lot of other people that have been kidnapped. Another note to self, when kidnapped, think of your co-kidnapped. Doris, I think this is really overwhelming. She said, oh, oh, it's definitely overwhelming. But the thing that really concerns me is Jesse. Jesse really needs help. Right, I said, Doris. Right, Jesse really needs help. Doris, why don't you lead us in prayer for your trauma? I think really you would be a better pastor to me <laughs> as I'm trying now to respond to the unbelievable response to this unbelievable set of circumstances. She said, I'll do that. And would you just pray at the end? And I did. Well, it was no great surprise a couple of weeks later when I got a call from Doris saying that she had been called into a lineup. She said, sure enough, there was Jesse, second from the left. And then the day came when I went with Doris to the courtroom and eventually Doris was placed in the witness box and she began by saying, hi, Jesse, it's me, Doris. Remember, we had that time in the car together. She said, judge, it's right, he did everything that he's, he's being accused of and he, she went through all the litany of things that had happened that morning. She said, now, he really has two needs, Judge. I just want to tell you. The first is he really needs Jesus Christ because this is bigger than him. I'll tell him about that. I know that's not your job. But what I think is your job is to make sure that he gets a really good drug rehab program this time. Right, the judge said. <laughs> and eventually he was assigned uh, guilty and sent to jail and assigned to what he said was a better drug rehab program and for the next six months, Doris called on him about every week or every couple of weeks just to check in on how Jesse was doing until eventually he was moved to another jail too far away for Doris to be able to go. Now, Doris was a tall, elegant, beautiful 85-year-old lady, a kind of Presbyterian, older, elegant woman, the kind of woman that would have her hair done every day, every Friday at 11, that sort of a lovely fine-boned, elegant woman, kidnapped, who brought to this moment far more than I could imagine bringing myself and taught me once again that you have to decide where you live and where you live is going to tell you a lot about how you live. Doris, long before this moment, had realized that she lived 
inside the kingdom of God. And the reality of that changed everything else about the way that she saw and encountered the world that was around her. The text that we read from the book of Daniel is a text that's written about a season when the people of Israel are in one of the places in which they live, exile. You know that in the Old Testament there are two great paradigms. The first paradigm is the paradigm of the Exodus. In the paradigm of the Exodus, it's clear that Israel lives under the oppression of Egyptian rule. This overwhelming sense of power and powerlessness, a longing for a desire to get out of this context and into some place in which they could find the reality of the hope and world that they believed God had promised and would give them. God sends them a provider, a leader, and the figure of Moses who eventually leads them out. But it's a fairly clear paradigm. The good guys would be Israel. The bad guys would be Egypt. It's clear that the goal is simply to get from Egypt to the promised land. And everything about the long, even exceedingly long narrative that ultimately takes Israel into the promised land is that story of moving from oppression into freedom. Now this theme, of course, is picked up on in the New Testament. And many New Testament voices, not least Jesus himself, makes it clear that we are moving from bondage to freedom, from darkness to light. That sort of contrast in comparison is a dominant and very, very important paradigm that explains Israel's identity, but it explains the identity of the people of God in the world. It is our location. In the long arc of history, we are living, by the grace of God, in a movement toward the promised land, toward the ultimate fulfillment, God's shalom, when all things are made right. Now, a great deal of American Christianity, particularly American Protestantism, has been deeply shaped by the Exodus paradigm, by the sense that people came often from some other place to this place, and somehow in this place, there was an opportunity to leave behind that place in all of its despair, sometimes abuse, and find instead a new home here. And some people landed in New Jersey and thought this was the promised land, and other people thought, I don't know, maybe not. And they came some to North Carolina, and other people thought, maybe not, and they kept Texas, and they kept moving to Mississippi, and they kept moving to Denver, and they kept moving across the country, and they kept moving and moving until they came to the place that many think, especially those narcissistic people like me who live in California, think they've arrived in that kind of a promised land. And a great deal of American culture is built on a promised land vision. And then it merges so conveniently, really, with the kind of secular influence of the church, which then creates a church which actually wants somehow to simply live in promised land life and to ask in the context of our Christian faith for God to give us the promised land that we believe we've been offered. And our life and our future is really going to be about getting and having the promised land. And if we think we've got it, then maybe we're momentarily content. But the story of our culture, especially as it converges with a kind of consumerism and interest in personal satisfaction and comfort and safety, can easily become a means by which we then have a vision of our life and our future that's really about getting and keeping the promised land. We'll enlarge the promised land, we'll remodel the promised land, we'll buy another promised land, we'll have a second promised land, we'll have multiple promised lands, we'll try to buy or earn or make our way toward some sort of promised land life. And a great deal of American culture is caught up with that desire for promised land life. Now the interesting thing is that the second paradigm in the Old Testament is very different. It's much more complicated, and it's the paradigm of the exile. In the neat and tidy paradigm of the Exodus, good guys and bad guys are easily distinguished, but in the exile, not so much. Israel is sent into exile not because Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are evil, 
but because, in fact, God does this as a form of disciplining his people because he loves them so much and wants them to actually understand that part of the problem is that they have failed to live out the identity that's really meant to be their identity. And the consequence of this is that the way that they behave, especially the way that they behave toward those that are people with less power, less opportunity, less economic structure, less opportunity for work, less social influence, that all of that becomes so much opportunity for extraordinary abuse. And the major and minor prophets are filled with the evidences of this and the warnings of God saying, you must change, you must repent, you must change your behavior. You must not be taken up just with the guarding of your own life, but actually understanding that your life is meant to be lived in a way that mirrors the radical, profound, justice love of God. Now, it's an amazing thing that all of this sends Israel into exile. And when we arrive in the book of Daniel, it's that sort of story. A story of what does it mean to live as faithful exiles? Now, all the signs of promised land life that ultimately evolve in Israel's life to be things that include the temple and the practices of worship, which Israel finds so much comfort in and which teaches them again and again that they are the unique and special people of God, all of that is now destroyed. And Israel now in exile is called to a different kind of life. How will we live as strangers in a strange land, demonstrating as exiles that we are willing to know and follow and love the God who has redeemed us, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God. And the book of Daniel is like an ideal picture of what a faithful set of exiles does. Chapter 1 is really about them being first taken captive, finding and remembering they need to remember every day that they have to practice their identity. Everything about Nebuchadnezzar's force and influence was to assimilate them to Babylon. Daniel and his friends determined that every time they ate, they would remind themselves that though they lived in Nebuchadnezzar's house, they belonged to Yahweh. Every time they ate, they remembered that they belonged to Yahweh, even though they lived in Nebuchadnezzar's house. Part of what unfolds in the book of Daniel is that rehearsal of identity. What do we do that every day helps us to remember that we are easily assimilated, that we are easily people who are indistinguishable from the wider culture, that now as people that I would argue are, as Jesus himself suggests, light and salt, you don't need light and salt if you're in the promised land. You're called to live as light and salt as the people of God because we live in exile. The Sermon on the Mount is a text which culminates with the text that we read in our New Testament reading, which is about how to live as a faithful exile, how to do what is uncharacteristic of the culture that's around us, how to live an angular life that demonstrates a different kind of reality, which Jesus says is the characteristic and quality of the kingdom of God. And it's that exilic life that we're called to here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, and all of the others are meant to not give way to all of the call to assimilation, but to live distinctively as exiles. They have to remember who they are. What do you do every day that helps you actually remember that you are meant to be a peculiar person? Not just odd. The church sometimes just chooses oddity. That's not what we're called to. But we are called to peculiarity, to a quality of life and character and action and love and justice and mercy, which looks like the heart and mind of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel remember who they are. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful person in the world at that moment, has a spiritual crisis. They respond to the crisis. They give him the dream and the interpretation of the dream, which is really about what we see in chapter 3 
an idol, an extraordinary idol. And in the wonderful rhetoric of chapter 3 and the, four, the form in which this chapter is written and that the choir that read it this morning captured so marvelously, there's this purposeful rhetorical repetition of, the, of all those who are meant to show up and of how it is that they're to respond when they hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and every musical ensemble. You see, Nebuchadnezzar builds the idol, the idol of his nightmare in chapter 2. The idol that really is telling the story about the ultimate decimation of his kingdom. But in the middle of all of that, what we hear is this rhetoric. This rhetoric that just calls everyone to comply, to assimilate, to bow down. You see, idolatry always has worked best in that way. What we need is just a really good mesmerizing rhythm. Mesmerizing rhythm. So when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and every musical ensemble, don't think, don't consider, don't reflect, just bow down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And we live in a context in which idolatries upon idolatries are offered to us almost every day. Not necessarily large, grotesque ones like Nebuchadnezzar's, They're more what I think of as kind of tasteful pottery barn idols. (laughs) They're not so offensive that someone walking into our house would say, oh my gosh, an idol. Oh, right here in the middle of the house. No, no, it's not like that. No, they're just tasteful. They're, They're discreet. They're tailored. They're decorative. But they possess us. And they possess our heart and our imagination. They limit our capacity for love. They define for us the limits of our ability to imagine a world where, in fact, sociology and love and mercy and justice functions in a very different way than the society around us often wants it to be. And there, in those very discreet, non-offensive, pottery barn-like idols, there are stories told about the things that actually really possess us, that get our best allegiance. Sometimes they might be degrees on the wall, they might be objects that we own that tell the story of just who we think we are. They become the symbols that tell other people just who we are. We give them extraordinary deference. We bow, oh, just in a very tasteful sort of way, of course. We wouldn't want to be untasteful idolaters. But we bow, we attend, we nurture, we obsess over all of those things. It might be our time. It might be our status. It might be our feelings. It might be our prominence in some particular social setting. It might be our health. It might be our beauty. Idols come in so many different ways. And they obsess us and they own us. And you can count on the fact that advertisers understand that. And every day, just on that level of mesmerizing rhythms, we hear the mesmerizing rhythms of Let's say for me, as a person that's spent too much time in an Apple store, there's a certain mesmerizing rhythm of announcements about the next Apple gadget. It's just a small little thing. It's just a little thing. It's just in my pocket. In fact, it's in my pocket right now. (laughs) Take it out of my pocket. Lose it from my pocket. Oh my gosh, my heartbeat changes. I feel anxious in the world. I feel disoriented. I feel uncertain. I can feel fearful. Just, just, a little, just a little thing. It's just a little phone in my pocket. 
but it tells a story about something that has my heart. And there's so many bigger stories. If I was to be a part of a 12-step program, I think I would have to be part of 12-step uh, Idolaters Anonymous. Hi, I'm Mark, and I'm an idolater. And I want to tell you about my idolatry. My idolatry is really maybe your idolatry. Because in the end, a great deal of our idolatry is really just an idolatry of, of self. Really, it's just I want the world the way I want the world. I remember one time speaking at a conference that was a, a large conference, and there were really, really bright lights on the stage, so bright that I could barely see anyone that I was speaking to. But what I could see was first a very large video monitor that had an image here of me. And then over here, there was another large video monitor that had another image of me. And then, of course, there was me. And I thought, this is sort of the postmodern trinity. This is, this is the world I was made for. It's all about me and me and me. And, and everyone that's present seems to be fully attentive to me, to the things I want, to the world that I want, to the things that absorb my heart and mind. It tells me the story of me. And that is part of what can capture my heart. But there are other idols in my life. There's other patterns. And I am called to be a faithful exile, and so are you. And I would say the biggest paradigm change that's happening in the church around the world, and certainly in the United States, is an understanding that we are meant to live as exilic people. Christendom, for all of its richness and strength in various ways, is cracking and broken. And it may be that this part of the country seems less evident. I can just tell you that every day in Berkeley, there's not a chance of mistaking that exilic life is what's normative. And every day, it's clear that today, in this strange place, I'm called to somehow live as a faithful exile, to learn what to do about the places where I may be prone through the mesmerizing rhythms of my own habits, my own culture, my own interests, the people that have influenced me, the things that capture my imagination. They can cause me to go in a direction that ultimately is bowing down, but not for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The high point of this text is not, I would argue, the later part in which they're saved in the fire. The great high point of this text is that moment when they hear that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before Nebuchadnezzar, who dares to say to them, who are you that you would dare not to bow down to the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up? And who will be the God that will deliver you from my hands? And then in the most amazing way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego simply say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to give you a defense in this matter. Our God may deliver you, our God may not deliver you. Deliver us. But whether he delivers us or whether he doesn't deliver us, we are go not going to bow down to the golden statue that you have set up. Why? Because they have been able to distinguish the greater danger from the lesser danger, and the greater danger is not, as Nebuchadnezzar thinks, the fire. The greater danger for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the idolatry. The idolatry of simply yielding to, to the worship of someone or something else. They are going to live as faithful exiles, despite all of the pressure, even of that moment, that could so easily have simply lulled them into conformity. When studies are done about the American church, it's almost indistinguishable from the rest of our culture. 
we are an assimilated church. And the great crisis of the church is not whether numbers are falling or rising or whether votes are being taken or not being taken. It's the fact that we've lost our distinctive in any peculiar way that actually enables the church of Jesus Christ in the United States to demonstrate the reality, the peculiar reality of being people who simply don't bow down and worship the gods that are at our beck and call and that call us to bow down and worship. Instead, we are people meant to be people who demonstrate an unusual forgiveness, a depth of love, a mercy and a kindness which doesn't come from simply finding and keeping and defending and guarding our own promised land. This is what made Doris so amazing. Here's Doris, an 85-year-old elegant lady with nut muffins. She just wanted to come to church and bring her nut muffins, worship God and be with her friends. That was all that day was supposed to be about. But long before that moment had ever happened, it was clear to Doris that she was meant to live as a faithful exile. She had spent years living as a faithful exile in settings where it cost her a great deal, where her willingness to actually lay her life down for the sake of someone else was her daily life. And it meant that suddenly, in the middle of nut muffins and just an ordinary Sunday morning, when the call came that she was meant to be a faithful exile, that was what she brought to the encounter with Jesse. I never once heard Doris even refer to this as a trauma. Of course, it was traumatic. She wasn't in denial. It just wasn't the thing that defined it for her. What defined it for her was she met Jesse that day. Footnote, when he happened to kidnap her. And the main story was wanting to love Jesse, a man whose life showed great need and for whom she genuinely had true and real love. So friends, the question that we're facing is, are we able to live an unhooked life? This is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that moment with Nebuchadnezzar, vein-popping Nebuchadnezzar, sure that he had them under his control. They were just unhooked. So are we? Are we unhooked? Unhooked from all the things that simply bring assimilation, conformity, a world in which we're simply looking after our own promised land and the guarding of promised lands and the keeping of promised lands? Or are we prepared to live as God's peculiar? And in Matthew 7, when he comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, all this, do you know what this comes down to? It doesn't come down to whether or not you just say that you think you agree with the Sermon on the Mount. It's whether or not you actually do what has been taught. One day in our congregation in Berkeley, I noticed a young man who was beginning to worship with us. He had really spectacular tattoos. They came up his neck and had flames that came up to his cheekbone. I hadn't had a chance to actually meet him or talk to him, but he was a very, very interesting looking guy. And that week, I had a chance to run into him on the street. We chatted for a while. He said, you know, for a long time, I've been a professional musician and and now I'm back in school. That has caused me to begin to reawaken various questions that have been at some distance from me for a long time. Some of those are religious questions. Some of them are spiritual questions. I'm going to churches. I've gone to your church for a number of weeks now, and I'm trying to make sense of things. I go to some churches. I hear a lot about Jesus, but I hear very little about its meaning for the world. I go to other churches. I hear a lot about the world, but I hear very little about Jesus because it seems as though that's not really relevant to them. I go to your church. I hear a lot about Jesus and a lot about the world, but what I want to know is this. 
if I actually show up regularly in your church, will I meet people that are actually like Jesus? Now I scanned his face for any sign of cynicism, irony, not a shred. He just wanted to know, is this all just going to be a lot of talk? Or do people here actually live what they say they affirm? I was writing a book on a, the topic of loving your neighbor. It had been a very difficult book for me to write for a variety of reasons. I was on a plane early six o'clock one morning. I had the manuscript in my hand. It had the title page, which had to do with loving your neighbor on the front. And I laid it down on the seat and put my case up over me. And then I scooted between the passenger there on the aisle and the seat that I was going to be in. And on the aisle was an, about an 80-year-old lady that isn't a typical sight in a 6 a.m. flight. She was rustling in her chair. She'd clearly been looking at my papers. I could just tell that she was going to be a talker, really. It was, she was going to be a talker, I could tell that. And sure enough, after a few minutes of rustling, she said, I'm, I'm just wondering if I could ask some questions about those papers. I said, you mean these papers? She said, yeah. Uh, are those papers yours? I'm thinking, who else's would they be? But yes, I said, they, they are mine. She said, does that mean that you wrote those papers? Uh, yeah, I said, I did write those papers. Well, what are those papers about? I thought, well, they're about what you do with really irritating people at 6 o'clock in the morning who are talking to you on a plane. Of course, I didn't say that, but I said, well, they're, they're papers about how we treat one another and the difficulty of doing that in a really good way. I could tell that she wasn't done. She sort of wrestled for a little bit longer in the seat. She said, I just have one other question I want to ask you. Is that a work of fiction? <laughs> I said, no. And then I just sat there stunned. Maybe, I said. Maybe that's why writing this book, I'm thinking to myself, was so hard. Because actually, as a work of fiction, all I need to do is write the words. But if it's a book about how to live, that's only made evident by doing so. And that's what Jesus means. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did as exiles, unwilling to be assimilated, even in the face of Nebuchadnezzar's rage and power, to live as distinctive people, and what are we called to be? We are called to be faithful strangers in a strange land who, like Jesus, build our house on rock because we do what we profess. And if the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States actually did what Jesus teaches, our country and our world would be a very different place. May God enable us to be faithful exiles because the same God in Israel and in Jerusalem and in the temple is the God who's with us in the streets and the marketplaces and the neighborhoods with tattooed strangers and with people on airplanes and even with people who may be our enemies God calls us to an exilic life if we think it's all about promised land we'll simply whine all the time but if we think it's actually about exile that is when the adventure really begins. 
Lord, by your grace, your people are needed in the world to be light and salt. But so often we are just people inside safe places or trying to find safe places instead of actually being people who live faithful, risk-taking lives, peculiar lives. Lord, by your grace, may this gathering this morning be filled with a hunger for the peculiarity that is meant to be yours in and through us. People who in humility and in sacrifice and in great love live in a world for your glory that doesn't look like the culture around us, that will cause us to be in challenging and sometimes very difficult places, but to do so because we follow you, the Lord, the giver of life, in whose name we pray.